Oh, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. All right. Well, Concord is a bit in a nutshell. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if I want to edit this out or not. <laughs> oh, mercy sakes. All right. So, yeah, you just you. <laughs> hey, it is what it is, man. It is what it is. We are rolling once again, Brother Kevin. How is life treating you this week? Man, life is treating me great. Got got some workouts in this week. I'm trying to catch up with you so I can have the muscles. Be muscle man over there. I am so far behind right now. We've been moving the office. We finally got everything moved out, and I'm exhausted. So I'm hoping I can do this podcast justice. And to our audience, Kevin and I want to extend a sincere apology. We were not able, because of the way life has gone for both of us, to get this episode recorded and aired on Thursday morning, as has been our habit from day one. But we will have it uploaded just as soon as possible. So thank you all for your patience. No, we have not disappeared off the face of the earth. We've had some people that have they have reached out to me and on our on our uh Facebook well, I was going to say some people who who, who yeah. wish who wish we would. Oh well, maybe. <laughs> well, we've had some people express some concern. I had someone holler at me and say, "Hey, is Kevin okay?" And I said, well, "Yeah, what's going on?" Well, he's not on Facebook anymore. And I said, "Well, he decided to be more productive, so he got rid of that distraction." So there you go. Well, I'm glad people. That means if ever I get kidnapped, some people will come after me. That's good. I might. I, pr- I appreciate the concern. Have to, dude, I'd have to thank find a you. new co-host. I don't, I don't want to whoever, do that. Whoever said that, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, tonight we're going to continue our discussion that we started a few weeks ago. We broke up this series so that we could interview Jared Bias, which was a great interview. We love that. And if you haven't picked up his book, Love Matters More, you really should pick that up and check it out. It's a really good book. It gives really good food for thought. And I think that we could all benefit from learning a little more about how to love like Jesus loved. And we really enjoyed that. But we interrupted interrupted our regular series that we're going through now of reconciling science with scripture. And it's been a really good series so far. It's generated a ton of feedback and a lot of questions, which we're going to get to in a Q&A episode soon. But tonight we're going to continue that conversation. And to recap, we went over in the previous episodes, if you haven't listened to those, we strongly recommend that you do so. Um, We talked about Genesis specifically is what we've honed in on. And the idea is Genesis literal history Is it literary history or is it parabolic or mythicized history? And we talked a little bit about those different delineations. We talked about those genres, if you would. And where I tend to land on it is a a mishmash of literary history and parabolic history. Genesis likely recounts a lot of things that actually happened, but a lot of it is likely told in parable form. And as it relates to the creation of the cosmos, the creation account, I do believe that that is fully parable. I still believe it's absolutely true. I still believe that God reveals his truth there and that that story that God gave us is inerrant to its purpose, which we'll get into in this podcast a little bit. But I still fully hold the Bible as the inspired word of God. I believe that it is inerrant and infallible and flawless to its purpose. And even if that view of Genesis that I hold to and that so many others hold to 
is a bit unorthodox, it doesn't discount the view of Scripture that a Christian has. Yeah, and I want one question, and if you want to hold off on the this for the Q and A, you can you can let me know, and we will. But one question that someone actually had asked me, and I thought it was a good question, is: Is there any evidence of any Jews believing that the first part of Genesis, specifically the the chapters that you believe are are not literal, straightforward history, Genesis one through eleven? Is there any evidence that any other Jews believe that, not just in the first century, but even prior to that? Do, do we have any? any evidence or any reason to believe that they, that any of those Jews believe that? I really like that question. And my answer now is I have no idea. So let's revisit that whenever we hit the Q and a, um, I'm sorry, I, no I just idea. threw that one out there. Yeah. I just now thought, no, 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 that. that's no, that's a good question. <laughs> that's fine. We'll be, we'll need to be sure and write that down because I don't want to do the Q and a and be like, we, we skip that question and people are waiting were there any Jews, you know, they're going to be losing sleep over it and their hair is going to turn gray and fall out and all this other stuff. They're, you know, they're going to be losing weight and become emaciated because of the suspense of wondering if there were any Jews that believe that. And I don't know, but I do know that, uh, that several of the early church fathers did believe that Genesis should be regarded or could be regarded as allegorical and that it might not be literal history. I'm, I'm fairly certain that, Augustine believed that. I could be wrong about that. Like I said, I need to brush up on that because I know that's one question. That we'll we just come back to it. Well. We'll come back to that. But yeah, we'll then. circle back to yeah. it. But but the point is, is that, that we got to and that we made up is that there are people who lose their faith because they can't reconcile science with Scripture. We see what we see in the created order. We see what we have. And yes, I do believe that it was created, though I think the methodology, and I believe personally that the methodology that God used is different than what most evangelical Christians believe. We still see within the created order evidence of how everything was done. And that evidence for some people is a big problem. It, it, it creates an issue in their mind and a dichotomy between science and faith, and they feel like they have to choose one or the other. And that's where I was personally and what we're going through. We talked about this a lot in the last introduction, so I'm just briefly going to touch on it again, is I had that same issue. And what we are discussing in this series is how I was able to reconcile that to my mind and be able to accept what science says and still accept the Bible as the word of God and still understand and know by faith that there is a God that he does love me and he wants me to know him and he wants to know me. And he wants me to come to him through his son, Christ Jesus. So for me, that I was able to resolve that in my mind. And this is the system that I went through. And this is the thought process, a picture of the thought process that I went through to get to that point. So in the last few episodes, we talked about, well, in the last episode, we talked about the order of creation and how there are two creation accounts in Genesis. And there are some questions that we received about that that we'll answer in the Q&A. And we also discussed some of the scientific inaccuracies that are found in the Bible, in Scripture. We talked about the flat earth. We talked about the immovable earth. We talked about the, the circular, the circumferential ocean that surrounds land on all sides. We talked about the pillars of the earth, the dome over the earth. Um, we talked about Jesus saying the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, etc., etc. And the question that we come to is, is how do we reconcile those things? And we talked a little bit about that last time. And this episode... We're going to dedicate the time to looking at the two different interpretive philosophies that people exhibit in an effort to reconcile these things that are found in Scripture that fly in the face of what we know to be true. 
We know the Bible says or even alludes to the idea that the earth is flat or that it's immovable. And we know that the earth is a sphere. We know that it moves through space. We know the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. So what sense do we make of all that? That's what we're going to focus on are the constructs, the philosophical constructs that people use to be able to reconcile those issues in, in their own mind. So before we dive into that, Kevin, do you have anything else you want to add? Any questions, anything like that that we need to touch on before we dive in? No, I just want to remind the audience that at the end of the day, you and I have both talked about this uh, in depth, really, in the past few episodes, and that is that this shouldn't shake anybody's faith. Um, and and I, I'm not saying that arrogantly. What I'm saying is, is that if this is something that is not an issue to you, you might not even want to listen. Uh, and what I'm and I'm not saying that to be derogatory towards the listener or Lee, but. We want to be very careful with when we present new ideas, we're presenting new ideas sometimes that we both agree with, sometimes only one of us agrees with. Uh, in this case, something that I myself am, am really just studying, and so I'm learning a lot too as I listen to Lee. But if this is something that you feel could hurt your hurt your personal faith and you're content with what you believe the Bible teaches on creation and inerrancy, there's really no reason to continue on. I mean, would you say that that's a, a, a fair warning, Lee, on something like that? <laughs> At the risk of having our followers and our listeners, our audience fall to near zero. Yeah, I agree with you on that because honestly, the, the faith of our listeners and being able to maintain that faith, that's more important to me than any audience we could ever have. And the entire purpose of this podcast that like we discussed last time is to build one another up in the faith. It's to help answer those hard questions that people have had. And if you're really happy with where you are, everything makes sense to you and you have full, you're fully at peace with your view of origins and scripture and things like that. That's awesome. My goal is not to convince you that you are right or that you are wrong or that I am right or anything else. My goal is to build up the faith in those who like me have had a season of doubt at some point in their life. That's what this is about. So if this is something that interests you, awesome. Keep listening. Hopefully we'll be able to answer your questions. If you have any questions that we don't touch on, email us your questions. We would love to answer them. Um, if you're listening to this and you're afraid that this could shake you, if you're finding yourself growing anxious, email me, please. Email us, please, so we can chat about this. And don't let this shake it. In fact, just stop listening now. Wait for our next episodes or our next series whenever we move on. I do not want this to shake anyone's faith whatsoever. So please, 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 please don't let it put you where I was because the goal is to bring people out of that miasma of uncertainty and doubt and to put them into a greater sense of, of awe for what God has done and for what he's revealed in his word, for what the Bible is and what science is and all those things. Well, and it's to also just give alternatives, uh, alternatives to understanding scripture, alternatives to understanding interpretation. And unfortunately, the way that the Christian faith has been taught, at least for, for a good bit now, in, in more of what, what Lee and I would call the legalistic style churches, is that you really can't question these things. And it, it does shake your faith sometimes to hear something that's different, because oftentimes our identity and our faith go hand in hand. And so if we begin to hear someone say something different, even if they're not attacking it, if they're just presenting a different idea, it, it can feel like we're being attacked. And so I, I would hope, too, within time, people who are listening, if this does shake your faith, 
that you can be okay listening to a different alternative uh, or, or an alternative, a different idea without connecting that to your own identity. Because there are many times that I listen to people speak and I come away still disagreeing, but it didn't shake my faith. I just understood that, hey, there's people who come away with different different conclusions than I do, but they're still a Christian. I'm still a Christian. We both love Jesus. We're just, because of whatever reason, maybe uh, maybe just because of your experience, because of your perspective, because of your education, because of lack of education, whatever it may be, people may see things differently. And so this is just an alternative, uh, as, as Lee believes, better fits the scriptures and understanding how the scripture operates. Well, and, and it, it helps me be at peace with knowing that I can trust scientific consensus and that that isn't a godless system, even though, well, we're not going to get into all that. But to me, it paints a picture of the majesty of what God has given us in the created order. It's incredible to see the intricacies of how all of that works. It really is mind-blowing when you think about it. And one of the, one of the, philosophies. We'll go ahead and dive in if that's cool with you. But one of the philosophies that people will use whenever they look at everything that's in the created order and they look at just the majesty that exists within all of reality, within what we perceive and what we see and observe on this earth, what we see in the universe, what we see cosmologically, all of these things, when we see them, we just stand in awe of them. I mean, you see a sunset and you see the sky painted with a myriad of different colors, the brushstrokes of the creator at work and on display in that moment as that light refracts through the atmosphere and paints those pastel colors on a, on a beautiful autumn evening with the, with the clouds and all that. And here I am waxing poetic. It just, it fills you with this sense of wonder, dude. It just hits you and it instills that and it drives that curiosity within us, which is what has led that curiosity, that God given inborn curiosity. It is what has led to so many of the great scientific minds of the past and in our time wanting to know more about this world and how it works. Yeah. And whenever these discoveries have been made historically, a lot of times there's pushback to it. You know, we, whenever Copernicus postulated because of the way the heavenly bodies moved as he could observe them that, well, maybe the earth isn't the center of the solar system. Maybe the sun is. People didn't really like that. And then whenever Galileo took that work and he leaned into it and ran with it, people really didn't like it. Galileo was forced to recant under the threat of execution uh, to recant his heliocentric theory. And to not even believe it, you know, he was told, you can't believe this. And so he recanted it publicly and it said, this is kind of an apocryphal statement that's made to Galileo that some say he said it, some say he didn't, who knows. But it said that even after he said all that and he recanted it under his breath in reference to the earth, he said, and yet it moves. <laughs> so this idea of science and faith conflicting with one another, it's not a new issue. It's something that's been around forever. And one of the main philosophies or one of the main interpretive strategies that a lot of Christians use to reconcile this is a principle called concordism. Now, is that a term that you have heard of before is scientific concordism? I'm, I'm pretty sure you have. I've heard you use it, but I don't think I've actually heard that myself. Okay. So what scientific concordism is, and it's something that I had an awareness of, but I didn't know about it until I read some of um, Kenton Sparks' work and Peter Enns' work and Dennis Limero's work. 
Um, they've all written about this idea in some of their books. None of them have written a book on it, but they've all mentioned it in some of their writings. And what scientific concordism is, is it's an effort to bring science into concert or to concord science with what we see in Scripture. So the idea is, is whenever you read something in Isaiah about the circle of the earth, why that means that Isaiah, like you talked about in the last episode, and like I was taught, that Isaiah received divine inspiration from God that the earth is a sphere, and he knew it before anyone else did, and he knew it and proved it before you know any of these other scientists were able to, to prove it. You know, Eratosthenes, he proved it in about 250 BC with his stick experiment, but Isaiah knew about it before Eratosthenes did. How about that? Isn't that amazing? It ignores the context of what the circle of the earth actually meant in the ancient Hebrew. So in scientific concordism, you have the idea that science needs to be brought into the framework of scripture and that scripture has to touch on science and be in concord with it or in concert with it. So the idea, the undergirding principle behind this is the idea that since scripture is infallible, it cannot contain any errors whatsoever as it relates to any type of understanding. Anything that the scriptures speak on, it speaks on as absolute truth. And any errors that you find, they're not real errors. They're only perceived errors. You've probably thought along those lines yourself, as I did for a while. Um, then there's also the idea when science conflicts with scripture, the issue is our understanding of science. The issue isn't scripture because the scripture is flawless. The issue must be with our understanding of science. And to that end, Scripture can be read in a manner that promotes modern scientific ideals. That divine revelation brought that to bear. The circle of the earth, wow, that's a sphere. But is it really a sphere? What about the contest, et cetera, et cetera? Do you have anything you want to add to that idea? No, no, it's good. Uh, unlike some of those in higher leadership positions, I'm, I'm not going to interrupt. I like, I like to listen. <laughs> <laughs> and we said we wouldn't get political on this. Oh, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. All right. What well, concordism in a nutshell. Oh my goodness. I don't know if I want to edit this out or not. <laughs> oh, mercy sakes. All right. So yeah, you just, you. <laughs> hey, it is what it is, man. It is what it is. In any case though, that's essentially the philosophy behind concordism. Science has to fit scripture. And if science doesn't fit scripture, well, then we have science wrong and we just need to return to it. Now, this isn't really a fully bad idea. I don't disagree with this perspective. I don't dis or let me rephrase that. I don't agree with this perspective, but I also don't disagree with some of the reasoning behind it. I understand why people think this way. And I think a lot of it has to do with our evangelical culture in these in the evangelical circles that are prominent in America and in other parts of the world. We want to have a high view of Scripture. There's some good things and there are some good motives that undergird concordism. In in one sense, it shows a respect for Scripture because Scripture has a very very high view in the concordist mindset. Now, I don't believe it's the best view of Scripture. I think there's a better approach that we'll get into later. But there's a respect for Scripture that's shown there, and that's undeniable. If you have someone that is wanting to concord science with Scripture, they're viewing Scripture as the highest authority that they must follow. And I really think that's an admirable philosophy to adhere to. Yeah, that's where I, that's the belief that I always had, and in part, large part, I would say right now, still still have. I'm pretty neutral 
as I'm learning and trying to learn, I'm trying to be as neutral as I can to, to listen to both sides. But yeah, it was just really forcing this idea of not, not only did the Bible not contain anything that was imperfect, but it actually contained information that was considered uh, not to be known at that time. I'm trying to think of a good word for that, but pretty much as you pointed out, going back to all oh, the, the, the old Testament teaches the earth was round before anybody knew it. And then you start digging into that passage. No, actually it's not round. It's just the circumference. And that's a big difference. And then you get into some of these other passages that, you know, we would allude to about how God knew these. I think there was one in, in Job or Ecclesiastes. I'm just now thinking on the, off the top of my head, but about the, all the water running into one place and, 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 and trying to just pick these, these verses, cherry pick them to try to teach what a great scientific book the Bible is and was. And then turning around when you see passages that you've talked about and say, oh, well, that's poetic or we shouldn't understand it that way. At best, that's very inconsistent because why would you go to the same book and even sometimes the same passage or, or you know, even the same chapter sometimes to say, okay, here God is giving us science nobody knew about, but here where it's bad science, it really isn't bad science, that's just poetic. And there seem to just be a lot of picking and choosing to try to fit that paradigm of saying that, this is how the Bible must behave. This is how the Bible must act. Well, and I think that that's I think that that's a really good assessment of the situation because I mean, really, if we're honest with ourselves, at the end of the day, we all tend to do some picking and choosing. We all tend to do some cherry picking if we're going to be honest. And the goal is, as we grow in our knowledge, as we grow in wisdom, as we move through our faith, as we explore faith and pursue grace. Hey, how about that? Mm. Our, our effort is to try to become more and more humble. Our, our effort should be as we grow in all of that is to cherry pick less and less and less and see the scriptures for what they are and see the context behind them. But what's, what's so plain to see with Concordism. And, and I think a lot of times people do this is we tend to accuse people that have a different perspective than us of being insincere. And I don't believe that about anybody that holds the philosophy of Concordism. They're sincere, brother. I mean, they are sincere. I was sincere whenever I held to that particular framework. People believe that in all sincerity. And that's I think that's to be commended. I think that the sincerity that people has, it's it's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. Because you're trying to promote the scriptures, the ultimate standard for all things. But that in and of itself, that's a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing too. Because one of the not so good issues with Concordism is that it doesn't really recognize scripture for what it is. Because the scripture isn't really the ultimate standard for all things. And maybe people are thinking, well, what, what, what do you mean by that? The scripture is not the ultimate standard for the scientific method. The scripture is not the ultimate standard for the best ways to prepare lamb or to you know, prepare a meal. You know, if, if it's not a cookbook, it's not a recipe book. The scripture is not the best uh, chemistry book that you'll ever find. I mean, does it speak about different things and is poetic language used? Of course it is. But there are a lot of things that the Bible doesn't touch on. And it's my opinion, based on what I've studied and based on what I have read, that while the Bible is the ultimate standard for all the things that it does touch on, it is not the ultimate standard for all things. I mean, Paul even, you know, mentioned this whenever he wrote to Timothy and said that, you know, that it's, that it's perfect. It makes us perfect and complete for every good work, not every single work, not every single thing that's possible, but for those things that it touches on. 
And the issue is, is that whenever you begin to look at concordism, you by necessity almost have to ignore the generic discourse of scripture. And that's one of the things that you just mentioned, whenever you find bad science in it and it doesn't really fit what we know about science, well, then we use those two magic words that we use to write off any part of scripture that we just don't really like. And we call it poetic language. It's poetic language. Well, and, and, and even with, with that, I don't even personally have so much problem with that. It's the inconsistency of when we think Oh yeah, yeah. That the Bible yeah. is giving us some sort of futuristic ideology for its time. The, we we say, "Oh, look, this is God sprinkling things in that nobody would have known about." And and then in the same book of the Old Testament, we'll you know let's take Job for example. There'll be another passage that'll say something that's unscientific or anti-science and uh, what we know to be true now. And then we'll say, oh yeah, but we can't take that literal. So it's, it's, it really is an, an unfair way of handling scripture. I believe no matter oh, yeah. what, no matter what way you go, the Bible's not meant to be a science book. And if you take it that way, you can't just pick and choose the science that works and then dismiss the science that doesn't work as being poetic because you just have to, there has to be some fairness and some consistency to the way that you go about that. And there just can't be. And so no matter what way you slice it, I'm right now pretty convinced that the Bible is just not meant to be a science book. Well, and, and that's exactly the point that I'm trying to make in ignoring that generic discourse. When we talk about the generic discourse, we're talking about the genre of Scripture. There is poetry in the Scriptures. And whenever you look at Psalms, you see a ton of poetry. Whenever you look at Ecclesiastes, whenever you look at the Song of Solomon, which is a book I've never heard a sermon preached out of, incidentally. When you look at Proverbs, whenever you look at Job, whenever you look at so many of the books of the Bible, you see poetry as a genre. But in so many of these books of the Bible, we ignore that generic um, association and we claim that it's scientific. You see pictures of poetry and prose and different literary structures, which we talked about before, in Genesis itself and the creation accounts. But we're going to say that's hard science whenever it better fits the genre of poetry. But the other scientific statements that are bad science, well, we're just going to call that poetry. It ignores that generic discourse. Um, another thing that is a problematic with scientific concordism is that it ignores the overwhelming scientific consensus that is, as it exists. And if you look at the Galileo affair, it, it's so plain there. Whenever you see that Galileo was, was opposed in part because he was opposing another eminent scientist of his day named Tycho Brahe. And he was a, a Dutch astronomer, and you can read about this. It's really interesting stuff if you're a nerd for that kind of thing like I am. But Tycho Brahe, he had some connections in the Catholic Church, and Galileo had made some other enemies. So part of it was personal, but part of it was also theological because it did fly in the face of understanding of the day. The Catholic Church was incredibly powerful in that day and time. And what Galileo was saying in that time and in that place as it related to the current um, trends of theology, it was heretical. But time would go on to prove that Galileo was right. He got more and more people on his side, even after his death. And by the time Newton came around and Newton proposed his laws of planetary motion, or no, Kepler proposed his laws of planetary motion, Kepler still left some work out. And then Newton, during the plague, whenever everything was shut down, Newton finished Kepler's work and proved mathematically that what Kepler said was true. 
and what Galileo said was true. Newton put a pin in it and made it obvious to every scientist in that day. And it became just a, a rote conclusion. The earth is round. It revolves around the sun and the planets do as well. That's evidence because one of the evidences for that is, is that you can make predictions about when a lunar eclipse is going to take place, when a solar eclipse is going to take place. We know when the planets are going to be where they are at different dates and times because all of that has been proven. It's irrefutable. But in that day, it wasn't so irrefutable. It was all still being worked out. The science was still being worked out, but that science was rejected. And even today, it's still rejected by a lot of people, well-meaning, sincere people who reject it out of hand because it violates what the scriptures teach. It ignores overwhelming scientific consensus whenever you begin to engage in concordism. And we have in our day and time, the Galileo issue is it's something that's been laid to rest more or less, but we still have overwhelming geological evidence for an ancient earth. Now there are some young earth creationists and we may get into this more in the question and answer session. I hope we don't get into too much geology because that's really not my wheelhouse, but there are some young earth creation scientists who ascribe to another philosophy called catastrophism to explain you know, the way everything looks. And the Grand Canyon is one of the examples that they use. Basically, they say that catastrophic events like Noah's flood and other things can lead to the geological features that we see in this day and time, whereas the vast majority of geologists are what are called uniformitarians, where they believe that everything that is aging today and everything that we observe today it's occurring at the same rate and in the same way that it's occurred forever. There are local events that are catastrophic that can lead to large canyons and things like that, but those are the exception to the rule. But you almost have to engage in special pleading to get there. It's like, okay, well, we have to reformat science to fit our preconceived worldview of how this works, and that's not really science. Well, let me ask you this, because I, I, this is a question that, since you're touching on it, I'll go ahead and ask, and if we, you want to spend more time on the Q and a session, you can do that. But I know that I was taught to believe, and I do think where I'm standing right now, that there does seem to be some validity. So I would like to see what you think about this. We know that if, if you take the creation account, literal straightforward history. Okay. So if you, if you read that and say, okay, all, everything happened exactly the way it said it happened. We, we do know that Adam and Eve were not born children. They were born adults. And we know that when you talk about the trees, you know, they didn't start out as seeds. They were, were trees. They were full grown, the bushes and, the, and those types of things. And so if that's the case, if, if you were there, assuming that all of these things were literal and you were to go cut a tree down, we don't know how many rings there would, there would have been, but it certainly wouldn't have looked like day one if, if you're comparing it to science. And so one of the arguments that I have heard of uh, and I think that it, once again, I, I, to me, it does make a, makes makes pretty good sense. And that is that, sh sure, the earth may may look very old because when God created it, he already created it as a mature earth. He didn't yeah, create yeah. he didn't create it as a as a day one earth. And so what would your response be to that? Because I'm sure there's people listening who I'm sure they would argue the same way or ask the same question. So how would you respond to something like that? That was my philosophy and that was my explanation that worked for me for a long time until I learned more. And 
there are two ways that I'll answer that, and I'm going to answer it very shortly here. And if it's cool with you, we'll revisit that in the Q&A because I really want to spend more time on that. There is a scientific answer for that, and then there is also a biblical and theological answer for that. So if it's cool with you on the Q&A, let's ask that question again. Cool. And yeah, that works. I'll, and I'll give the biblical theological answer because it's going to take more time to flesh that out. But the short answer scientifically is the evidence, the other evidence that we have flies in the face of that. And we talked a little bit about that in the last episode when we talked about the rate project. Um, uh, let me find those notes. Let me get that pulled up. And that rate project we talked about in the last episode, it was that young earth creationist um, project that was spearheaded by the Institute for Creation and Creation Research Society. And it ran for eight years and they measured radio, radioisotopes in this relation to the age of the earth. And just a real quick recap, I don't want to go into all that again, but they measured these radioisotopes, radiometric decay, radiometric dating, and all of these other things. And they found that the evidence overwhelmingly supports an earth that is hundreds of millions of years old because these isotopes and these uh, structures, they decay and the, they lose their radioactivity at a known rate over time. And what they postulated is as well, it must have lost a lot of radiation in the first few days of creation because of that evidence. And maybe the isotopes were put there, you know, and God put them at that certain state of decay at the moment of creation. And that's what we'll get into in the next episode with a theological answer. I don't believe that God would have done that. I believe the very short answer is, is that that would violate a fundamental aspect of God's nature. And we'll get into my reasoning for that in the next, in the Q and a, but if the, if that radioactive decay took place over such a short period of time, it would have heated the earth up to, I don't know if you remember, to almost 40,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is four times hotter than the surface of the sun. And the earth would be vaporized at that heat. So scientifically, I don't think that's likely. Theologically, I think it's an even bigger problem. We'll talk about that in the next episode. So stay tuned, listeners. Stick around. Stick around. But no, that is a really good question. And that was an answer that worked for me for a while. And we'll get into the details of why that answer isn't satisfactory for me anymore, though. It very well could be the case. I'm not going to say that I know for a fact that that's not the case. I'm, I will freely admit it very well could be the case that God made this world and this universe and everything in it with that apparent age. That very well could be how he did it. That answer is not satisfactory for me anymore. It was but ultimately, like we said, it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things if our faith is placed in Jesus. So um, Concordism, though, in and of itself, that's one of the strategies that Concordists will use is that apparent age theory. So that's a really good example of Concordism. It's making science and pushing science. Well, I really don't want to use that word. It's a little too strong. But it, it moves science to fit with the scriptural narrative. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's a good, I, under, I understand what you're saying, yeah. Okay, so for me, for a variety of reasons, and we'll touch on more of those reasons in the Q&A because I really do want to try to keep this shorter, that philosophy just didn't work for me. The philosophy that I ascribe to now and the interpretive strategy that I ascribe to now is one that I feel like respects science and it respects what God has shown us in science but it also respects scripture for what it is. And that's the accommodation principle. Now you and I have talked about this before, and I know you said you've done a little bit of reading on this. Do you want to get into that or do you want me to just keep going with it? Oh no, man, you're doing great. Yeah. Just go ahead and keep on with it. I'll, I'll throw in some comments every now and then. 
Hey, that'll work. So <laughs> this is your wheelhouse, man. I'm gonna let you. It's spin mine, it. baby. All right. Yeah, but let me tell you something. I'm far from an expert, brother. So accommodation, as it relates to Concordism, it, it's it's different. It's a different framework, and it's a different set of of rules of engagement, if you will. So accommodation recognizes that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So I don't want anyone to mistake. I think I've made that perfectly clear that I view God's word. I view the scriptures as absolutely 100% without compromise. The scriptures are the word of God, period. But accommodation recognizes that, and it also recognizes that man had a role to play as well. Man had a role to play in the formulation of the scriptures. And I don't know if we've said this on the podcast. I know you and I have talked about it before. It wasn't like the Matrix where God just jacked into a prophet's brain one morning while he's sitting down to eat breakfast. And is, he goes into this fugue state and just starts writing. And then whenever the Holy Spirit you know, removes his influence from the prophet, the prophet says, oh, wow, what did I write? I can't wait to read this to know what it said. That's not how inspiration works. At least that's not my view of how inspiration works. You know, the Apostle Paul talked about, and this is probably taking that out of context, but the idea of we have this treasure in earthen vessels. God has always mediated his message through a messenger. He's always mediated it through mankind. And the accommodation principle recognizes that. The Bible is a divine book, but it's also a human book. God used man to write things down and to reveal his message to mankind. And as a result of that, any scientific error that we find in Scripture isn't an apparent error. It's not a challenge that we need to overcome. It's not something that we need to reinterpret. Rather, it's a reflection of the ancient understanding of the day in which scripture was written. It's that it's a reflection of that human element in scripture. And what we see in that is God accommodating man's limited understanding of science. He came down to man's level of understanding to reveal himself to mankind. And we were talking a little bit before we hit record about the mustard seed. And about Jesus's reference to a mustard seed. And you asked a good question about that. And why don't you go ahead and ask that question? Because I think it really kind of helps to show the contrast between concordism and accommodation. Well, I think a lot of times, based upon the way you define concordism, uh, it, it, people who take that view actually oftentimes don't fully follow through with it because they begin to accommodate as well. And one of the questions that I was asking Lee is that when you look at Jesus talking about the mustard seed and how he said it's the smallest of all seeds, usually the the response to that is, well, Jesus really didn't mean that it was really the smallest of all seeds because Jesus was the creator of all things. I mean, he was he was there at the beginning, so he would have known that the mustard seed is not the actual smallest seed of all time. However, he's speaking to his audience. And so there's several plausible explanations, such as Jesus could have been talking about the seed, the smallest seed that perhaps his audience was aware of. Or it could have been that Jesus was just speaking in in such a way not to literally mean that it was the smallest seed, but he's just speaking accommodatively. Oh, accommodatively. Well, there's that term. And so the question I was asking Lee is, how do you deal with that? Could it not be the case that Jesus was, didn't really mean to say to 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 teach that the mustard seed is the smallest seed? And Lee's answer was, "Yeah, that's the whole point. That is what a, a accommodation is. <laughs> it's it's understanding that when the Bible says something, it doesn't necessarily say it to be a hundred percent factual, but to accommodate 
the either the culture or the point that the writer or speaker is trying to make or even the context at that time or the knowledge at that time. And so I thought that was very interesting because when people do try to make the Bible fit, oftentimes they jump ship and they begin to accommodate, which from my understanding, Lee, that's exactly what you're saying that we should be doing. We shouldn't be trying to make the Bible fit. These hardcore facts instead realize that the Bible's not supposed to be stating facts all the time. It's it's giving a, a, a message, and sometimes within those messages, things are said that may not be scientifically accurate, but they weren't meant to be scientifically accurate. Am I correct in saying that? Brother, you're spot on. That's a that is a perfect summation of accommodation. And the contrast to concordism is the strict concordance or the strict concorder. I'm not sure what the appropriate term would be in that sense, but they would say, oh, no, Jesus said the mustard seed is the smallest seed. So it must be the smallest seed. That's a good illustration of how concordism and accommodation um, contrast with one another. And we see God accommodating and condescending to, and I don't mean God's being condescending like you would be towards somebody in a derogatory sense, but he's coming down to our level. And whenever you have kids, you really understand that. Um, one time I remember whenever we were still living in, in Hilton and we were driving to Ardmore, McKinley was with me. I think she was four or five. And she asked me one day, we were driving, she was looking at me and she said, dad, why is the sky blue? And so my answer to her was this. I said, well, baby, the sky is blue because the atmosphere is composed primarily of ozone, which is oxygen that's bound together in a covalent bond with two other oxygen molecules. And the primary refractive index of ozone is on the blue end of the spectrum of light. And so the light that's refracted that gets sent down to our eyes is primarily blue in color for that reason. And she said, Dad, I didn't understand a word you just said. And I said, well, baby, the sky is blue because what it's made of makes it look blue. And she said, okay. The first answer was scientifically accurate, but she didn't get it. The second answer was accommodation. I accommodated to her level of understanding to explain it to her in a way that made sense. And that's the idea behind the accommodation principle is that the Holy Spirit revealed to man what he wanted to reveal to man. And then man wrote that down. And it's a product of that time and place of that man's time and place, a product of his culture, because that's how God wanted it. For whatever reason, that's the way God did it. That's the Bible he gave us. And on faith, I accept that. Now, the good thing about this, and there's some issues with accommodation, but the good thing is, at least in my view, is that accommodation creates no dichotomy between science and faith. You don't have to reconcile science with faith whenever you recognize the accommodation principle at work in those scientific passages. Those elements of bad science, as it were, as we understand it today, was what they observed in that day and time. It makes perfect sense that we would see that come through in their writing. Accommodation recognizes scripture for what it is. It doesn't push it beyond its purpose. It doesn't make the Bible a science book. It doesn't shoehorn science in. It doesn't try to force a round peg into a square hole. And really, to another degree, accommodation, when we recognize it for what it is, it tends to reduce, at least in my opinion, the risk of eisegesis as it relates to, to scientific discourse. Now, what eisegesis is, and you know this, but some of our listeners may not, it's trying to shoehorn the Bible to fit your perspective. It's reading into the scripture things that aren't there because you think it should be there. 
exegesis is the opposite. It's pulling from the scriptures what's there. It's the sense of scripture itself as far removed from preconception as we can make it, if that's even possible. So in, in my mind, accommodation has some good things going for it. Those, as it relates to this principle of science and faith, that's the strongest thing. For me, that has been such a blessing to be able to recognize accommodation at work. But there are some other elements to accommodation that aren't so good. And these are just some things that I came up with, and you might have thought of some more. If it's not rightly understood, accommodation can cause Christians to question the veracity of the Scriptures. It can cause Christians to question how reliable the Bible really is, how trustworthy is the Bible. And there have been some books written on this subject that have been helpful for me. But we also see this being an issue for some people. If they don't have a good grasp of accommodation, if they don't have a good grasp of context and contextualization, then it can create issues and it can cause them to doubt the scriptures. And as you and I have stated time and again in the series, that's not something that we want. No, and, and that's that's why I think for a lot of people when they hear this, it really throws them for a loop because Number one, they may not really understand at first what you're saying, and so they begin to project what they think you're saying. And oh, well, Lee doesn't really think that we can trust the Bible, or Lee doesn't think that God is really the ultimate author of the Bible, or Lee just thinks that the Bible is a, a, a big book of myths, and that can't be further from the truth. When you yeah. look, at, when you look at what you're saying, in in a lot of ways, many Christians, even very conservative literalist, biblicist Christians are already doing this. They're already going to certain Bible passages and using this accommodative approach to say, well, look, we understand that's not true literally, but you know, we, we've got to understand that God was being accommodative here. So I think that people are already doing this. Most, I mean, really all Christians are doing this to some extent. You're just taking this probably a few steps further than most Christians either are or they're familiar with. Yeah, and and that's true. And one of the reasons for that is, is because in the eyes of some evangelical traditions is whenever you take accommodation to that point, is it doesn't seem to promote a high view of Scripture in their eyes. Well, what do you mean we can't trust what the Bible says about the shape of the earth? What do you mean we can't trust what the Bible says about the earth being fixed in place? Well, then that throws the whole, we might as well throw the whole Bible out the window. And it's like, well, no, no, we, we have to put it in its appropriate context. We have to look at it for what it is. I mean, just like, you know, the passage that you and I have referenced time and again on this podcast, when Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter into heaven main than to enter into hellfire hole. You know, it's, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but we recognize that Jesus doesn't literally mean you need to cut off your hand. He's using a literary device to make a point, and accommodation is another device. It's an interpretive device. And to say that it doesn't hold a high view of Scripture, to me, misses the point of what accommodation is. It's recognizing the Scripture for what it is so the Scripture can be more powerful and more trustworthy in your life. That's what happened for me. But another issue that people have is, is that it calls into question the orthodox view of inerrancy. And I say orthodox in, in square quotes. You know, the orthodox view of inerrancy is that the Bible is absolutely flawless and correct on everything that it touches on. Did, you say, did you say scare quotes? 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a term that a lot of people use for quote unquote, they'll say oh, scarecrow when you. you put your fingers up in the air and you, because it looks, because you look like a scarecrow when you put your fingers up and, and you say quote and you do the quote thing with your fingers. You know what I'm talking about? I yeah. thought it was always air quotes. No, no. Yeah. It's air quotes, but some people call it scare quotes too. I've never heard because that. That's hilarious. You never heard that? Yeah. Well, at first of all, they said scarecrow. And then I'm like, what is he talking about? And then it kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah, scare quotes because yeah, you look like a scarecrow when you do it. That's but funny. We digress, and some would say we digress in more ways than one. But anyway, you learn a lot on this show. I'm, I'm learning all <laughs> things. But anyway, it's like I used to always think it was a butt load, and then I found out it was a boat load. So yeah, you <laughs> learn all sorts of stuff. Oh, interesting thing about that one. I'll talk to you about that one off the air. But in any case, the orthodox view of inerrancy is what we talked about at the top of this episode, that the Bible is absolutely flawless in everything that it touches on. So if it says something about science, well, we have to take that and we can throw our observations out the window. The earth being round, nah, fam, it ain't round, it's flat. So that's the idea of inerrancy if you take it to its extreme conclusion. And we recognize that that's not the case. And we, at this day and time, the majority of Christians don't have an issue with that, but we do with these other things because of our view of inerrancy. And we won't get into all that now. We may do that in a future episode and talk about different views of inerrancy. I think that'd be a great standalone episode, but we've already gone a little over what I wanted to now. So do you have anything else that you want to get into on the accommodated principles? Is there any other things there that you can think of, good or bad or other? No, no, I think it's, uh, this is very interesting, man. I really am learning a lot through this. I hope other people are, are as well. All right. Well, for me, the accommodation principle was a much more robust and powerful tool than concordism for me. It was, to me, it's a better way of reading the scriptures. It's a better way of approaching the scriptures and it's, and it's done a lot for me to help rectify those issues that existed within my own mind. That is the framework that helped me be at peace in my faith again, because I have a strong faith, but I can't ignore what I see with my own eyes. I can't ignore that scientific evidence that exists right in front of my face that I can look at, especially as I learn more about biology and learn more about geology and learn more about this world that God has given us and that he has made it. I, I can't ignore that evidence. And what concordism essentially says as we start to wrap this up is that our understanding of science must be wrong. But in light of that, the scientific method produces reproducible results through experimentation, through observation, through the different methods that scientists use to study and examine things. You can get reliable data to examine the physical nature of reality. And if you get inconsistent data, well, then you scrap it, you start over and you experiment again until you get good data. One of the things Isaac Newton said is, is I've been able to see further than anyone else. It's only by standing on the shoulder of giant scientists build on the work of their predecessors. And they and were constantly learning more and more and more about everything that is science is concrete. Now we're always learning more, but the method that's used to arrive there, the basic framework it doesn't change. Reality is what it is. And our understanding grows. It's always evolving. And our methods of how we evaluate that reality, they become more sophisticated with time. And we get a better understanding of all of these things that are. Whenever you think about flat earth, when you think about it, geocentrism, 
That made perfect sense in the day and time in which it was postulated because that's as far as we could observe. But whenever our observational methods and experiment and our ability to experiment became more sophisticated, heliocentrism won out. Newtonian gravitation won out over some of the more occultic ideas that there was some sort of magic or divine force that drove everything together. Special relativity ended up winning out over Newtonian uh, gravitation. So science is always moving forward. Reality didn't change. It always was, but we just got better at observing it. But with accommodation, the idea is different. It's not that our understanding of science must be wrong. It's that maybe my understanding of the Bible and how to interpret it isn't as solid as it should be. Maybe I'm not approaching the scriptures as it's meant to be. If I have something that I can see in my, if I have something that I can behold with my own eyes, if I can look out and see with this telescope and see countless galaxies that exist out there in the universe, maybe there's not a hard dome over the earth in which the stars and the sun and the moon are embedded and move. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe my view of scripture isn't what it should be. With science, you observe the natural world, you interpret that data. And with Bible study, you observe the scripture and you interpret the data that you extrapolate from that. And while science is more or less concrete in those things that we know, in some cases, science can be settled, but science is always evolving. Science is never truly settled. The Bible, what you got there? You got something? Well, no, no, actually, that was, there was a file that just popped up on my screen. So, ah, well, all right then. In any case, the Bible, it's a product of its time. It's an ancient book. It's a diverse book. It's a nuanced book. It was written by multiple authors over time with God as the ultimate author and collaborator with mankind. Man had a part to play in its composition. And whenever we see the level of thinking and the level of scientific knowledge that existed at that time at work and present within Scripture, that shouldn't be a surprise. That's not a problem that we need to overcome. We can know more about the absolute terms of of life and everything that is and how reality functions and how this world functions and how the universe functions as we grow and develop better ways to measure these things and study these things. And with the Bible, I don't think we can attain the same level of knowledge about Scripture as we can about science in, the, in, in this idea because of the nature of Scripture itself. Because the way we study the Bible is altogether different from the way that we study the universe. But even so, in terms of accommodation, the Bible is still trustworthy. That doesn't mean that we can't trust the Bible. That doesn't mean the Bible is unreliable. That doesn't mean we can just throw it out the window and just do whatever we want. Because whenever we see the flawed viewpoints of the human authors come through in those incidental ways, it's not a problem because the purpose of the Bible was never to tell us what the shape of the earth is. The purpose of the Bible was never to tell us how humankind reproduces. It was never the purpose to tell us whether or not a rabbit is a ruminant or not, or whether a bird is a bat. That's not the purpose of scripture. The purpose of the Bible is to bring us to God to bring us into relationship with God through Christ, to know Jesus, to know who he is, to make him known to the world and to give us the pattern to follow. That pattern is Christ. He is the pattern that we model and mold our lives after as we endeavor to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to truly love our neighbor as ourselves, to love our fellow image bearers that bear the image of God. That's what the Bible's purpose is. That is the tool that the Bible is suited to be. 
to help us to know God and to make him known. And whatever the Bible says about that, it is perfect. It is infallible. It is flawless. Well, this whenever- is really just reframing the Bible is, is, is what you're doing. And that phrase might be uncomfortable to people, but it's not reframing the Bible in a unbiblical way. It's trying to reframe the Bible in the way that the Bible was actually written. And for far too often, we come to the Bible with not, not only our own preconceived ideas, but we come to the Bible wanting it to fit a certain model that it really just isn't supposed to fit. And and that's where there's problems that are created that we create that aren't created because of the Bible, but because of our understanding of the Bible. And because of that, there are, as you pointed out, really throughout this whole segment, not just this episode, but the last few episodes where you've talked about this, is that that's really the problem. The problem is, is that when there are issues and questions that we are trying to answer as Christians that perhaps were never even meant to be answered. They were never even meant to be a problem. You know, we shouldn't be scratching our brains asking, well, did Jesus really not know what the smallest seed was? That really wasn't the point of Jesus talking in that moment. It wasn't the point of 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 the gospel account, and it wasn't the point of the, the story today as we try to apply it to our lives. It's it's talking about faith and the importance of faith, not mustard seeds and sm- the smallest seeds. That's not what it's really about. So it really just distracts us and from the, from the point that the scriptures are supposed to bring us to. Instead of bringing us closer to Jesus, we're fighting over what the smallest seed is. And that's not what the Bible's supposed to be about. And unfortunately for for far too many years, I think a lot of times Christians with the best of intentions and with a lot of zeal have really spent a lot of time and effort trying to make the Bible something. In many cases, it's not and was never designed to be. And that is where you have a lot of these faith crises, as you've called it. Well, and I think I would even take it a step further. I really think that that is a tool that the enemy uses against us. And I really think that whenever we do that and we focus on, well, what is the smallest seed really? And was it really six literal 24 hour days in which everything was created? And, you know, were plants created first or was man created first? You know, which creation account do we trust? Oh, no. Well, this is how we need to interpret these creation accounts is, you know, the second one is is making sense of the first one. Genesis 2 is making sense. No, no, it isn't. Those are two accounts. That's a distraction. And really, in that sense in a way we're kind of leaning on our own understanding at that point. I mean, we need to use the faculties that God gave us and we need to have an approach to scripture that honors logic and that honors the tools that that God has given us and that he has revealed to us. But really whenever we begin to break it down and argue over those things, brother, we miss the the forest for the trees. We really do. We become so focused on that and we become so focused on being right about that and being certain about those things that we miss Jesus. We miss him staring us in the face, ready for us to come to him and know him and to love one another in spite of those differences and in spite of those interpretive differences. And this isn't something that should be a test of fellowship for anybody. This isn't something that should cause anyone to get kicked out of any brotherhood or marked and avoided or anything like that. Whenever we do that, we really miss the forest for the trees. We really mess up at that point because we draw lines and call someone unworthy because effectively they're, they're guilty of a thought crime in our, in our book. And at that point we are 
ascending to the level of God himself by casting judgment on a brother because he holds an opinion that's different than ours that really can't even be proven. And that's the thing. Whenever it comes down to this, I can't really prove that anything that I'm saying is absolutely true, but no one else can either. But I do believe it. I believe that it is the best way to go about it. And there are people that disagree with me. And you know what? That's okay. All of you listening, if you disagree with me on this, well, you're just flat wrong and you're lost. No. If you're, <laughs> no, that's, that's the old Lee coming out. Sorry. No, if you're listening to this and you disagree with me, that's okay. You're still my brother. You're still my sister. I still love you. And I hope you still love me. And I hope that you can still recognize me as a fruitful co-laborer in the vineyard that God has called us to labor in, in this world. Amen. All right. Well, I think that was a good episode. I've pretty much said everything I wanted to say on it. Do you have anything else you want to add before we sign off? No, man, everything sounds good. I, I think it's uh, given them, given people a lot to think about. The only question I would ask you just to give you the opportunity is, are, are there any resources, whether it be books, websites, where if this is the first time someone has heard this, that they want to dig a lot deeper to look at some of these specifics, what, what were, would be some resources that you would recommend? Some books that have been helpful for me. This first one I'm going to say is a really hard read. It's a thick book. It's almost 500 pages, but it's really good. It's written by two Christians. I mentioned it in a previous podcast and I need to go through it again. It's been years since I read it, but it's called the Bible rocks and time. And it's written by two Christian geologists it is well worth the price. It goes into the geology behind it. It goes into flood geology. It talks about the uh, um, radiometric dating. It talks about stratifications. It, it goes into everything. It is exhaustive. And it's written by two Christian geologists that are evangelical. They believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. And they believe the earth is close to 4 billion years old. So it's a really interesting read, if that's your wheelhouse. Um, another uh, writer... I would recommend, I've only read two of his books, but I would recommend all of them based on the quality of the other two is Dennis Limerow. He's one that I've mentioned on this as well. And we'll, I'll put this in the show notes as well. Um, he's written um, two books. One of them, I'm just, this is just off the top of my head, Why I Believe in the Bible and Accept Evolution, or it might be Why I Love Jesus and Accept Evolution. I can't remember that that title. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes though. And then the other one is um, Evolution, um, science and scripture say yes, or nature and scripture say yes. That's another really good one. Okay. Um, the, the principle of accommodation is another book I recommend. This will be the last one I'll mention here. And if there's any others, if you guys are interested, you guys can shoot us a message or email us is God's word and human words by Kent Sparks. That book has been a, an ex, a huge help for me. It's been very beneficial and I highly recommend anything that, that Mr. Sparks or Dr. Sparks, I should say has written. Awesome. All right. All right. Well, once again, thank you all for listening. We appreciate our audience tremendously. We're looking forward to wrapping this series up. We're going to have a Q&A in our next episode. And then we have some really cool stuff planned coming down the pike. So we hope you'll listen. Please share this podcast with your friends. Please share it with your family. Please share it with people. If you think we're wild heretics, share it with other people so you guys can gossip about us. Um, just uh, get the word out there. Like us on Facebook or I guess, you know, I'll answer you since Kevin's not on Facebook anymore. He's too good for social media now. <laughs> and uh, we look forward from we look forward to hearing from you guys and we look forward to uh, being with you once again. Thank you much.